On March 13, 2008, the citizens of Omaha, Nebraska were shaken as news broke that there had been a double murder in Dundee, one of the city's normally quiet, affluent neighborhoods. It was a mysterious crime that on the surface made no sense. It was abundantly clear, however, that whoever this murderer was had gone there that day with that purpose and that purpose alone, to kill. It was a crime that left detectives scratching their heads. Days, weeks, months, and ultimately years would pass without any clues or evidence pointing towards any suspects. The case grew cold, and the citizens of Omaha were left wondering, was there a killer among them? Five years and two months later, on Mother's Day of 2013, Omaha would be struck yet again by another double murder. And it brought the first double murder case back to life. Evidence at the scene left no doubt that these two cases were connected, leaving investigators faced with the terrifying possibility that they were dealing with a serial killer. And it brought about a renewed sense of urgency to get these cases solved and that killer behind bars. Today, we're going to examine these murder investigations and try to find the answers to some burning questions. How did these four people, who had no obvious connection to one another, end up murdered five years apart in eerily similar ways? Why were these people targeted? Who was responsible? And we are going to try and figure out if important clues were overlooked early on that, if investigated thoroughly, could have prevented the second double murders from happening. This is the 191st episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Dr. Serial Killer. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is the fourth and final part of our series. So after this, if you haven't listened to any of it, you can binge. Or if you have not yet listened to parts one, two, and three, then you will need to pause this here, listen to those first, and then come back to this. So the good news is we are finally going to finish up this story and get to the conclusion. Don't forget that we are in the middle of another series on Patreon where we are discussing the 2011 death of Josh Hilberling. It's a story out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. After a heated argument with his wife, Amber, Josh ended up plummeting out of their 25th floor apartment after falling out of a flimsy window, and he fell 17 stories to his death. There have been some developments since the case played out in court, so we are delving into all of that. You can gain access to these Patreon episodes with a subscription that starts at only $1 a month. There are a handful of extra bonus episodes for subscribers at the $5 tiers and above, but even for the lower tiers, you will still have access to many hours of exclusive content to listen to. Your support, of course, helps keep the lights on over here at our little studio slash apartment slash dog kennel. And if you prefer to not sign up for a subscription, you can still help out the show through PayPal by using my email, californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I'd like to thank Christina S., Anna H., Denise B., Jennifer B., 
Susan B., Javier, Diane M., Teen S., Denise M., Kenzie, Martha C., and Marie P. for either joining Patreon, raising your pledge to the next tier, or donating through PayPal. All of your help is greatly appreciated. Other ways that you can help give the show a boost is to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the platforms that you listen to your shows on. That gives us more visibility for listeners to discover the show. Some of the information regarding this case came from news articles and court documents online, as well as a book written about this case entitled Pathological by Henry Cords and Todd Cooper. Any excerpts from the book will be cited in the show and in the show notes, along with links to the online articles. And I think that will do it for the small talk. Let's get started with the fourth and final part of this series. So we left off with Dr. Anthony Garcia getting stopped on the highway and taken into custody. He was finally in the county jail in Jonesboro, Illinois, where detectives Ma and Warner, who had been in Terre Haute when he was arrested, they drove as fast as they could to the jail so that they could come and see Garcia and hopefully talk to him for the first time. When Garcia was finally brought into the interrogation room, the detectives shook hands with him. Garcia didn't appear to be anything like they had expected. Lots of people that get arrested that are suspected of crimes like this usually kind of had more of an attitude about them. Garcia was sort of unassuming and unremarkable. Not exactly the kind of guy that they expected to meet being suspected of four brutal murders. Detective Wah got straight to the point. They were not there to discuss his driving under the influence. They were from Omaha and they were there to talk to him about a case that they'd been working on for a while. So they'd really appreciate it if they could discuss a few things with him. Garcia apparently didn't know that they were members of law enforcement, so he asked, so you guys are cops? And they were like, yeah, we're detectives. We're here from Omaha. And Garcia was like, okay, I'll talk to you, but I'm going to need an attorney. And that was the end of that. But the detectives kind of figured something like that was going to happen, so they didn't have their hopes up that he was going to talk to them anyway. So when they left the interrogation room, Detective Wong went ahead and told Garcia that he did come with a warrant, that he was being charged with four counts of murder, and they were going to collect all of his personal items as evidence. The fact that Garcia had little to no reaction to being told that he was being charged with four murders was pretty telling because he didn't ask any questions. He wasn't like, what murders? What are you talking about? What's going on here? All he said was, okay. And he turned around and headed back into his holding cell. All Detective Mock could wonder is, does this guy have any idea what is actually happening to him right now? He just came across as completely checked out, totally just not present. 
On the afternoon of Monday, July 15, 2013, the Omaha police chief held a press conference to announce that Garcia was under arrest and he displayed his mugshot so the community could get a look at the person who had them living in fear for more than five years by then. The police department had reached out to Dr. Bill Hunter ahead of the press conference to let him know before they announced it to the media. When they told him that they had arrested Garcia at first, he seemed to be really surprised. But that feeling quickly went away, like it suddenly came together for Dr. Hunter. He was like, oh, okay, well, I get it now. He never really let go of the belief that anyone he worked with at Creighton would have had anything to do with killing his son. He just refused to believe it, even after the second set of murders. Looking back on it, Dr. Hunter still had a hard time accepting it because he had really gone out of his way to help Garcia, even after he was fired. In the wake of Garcia's arrest, Dr. Hunter continued to wonder, why hadn't he thought of Garcia before, back when his son Tom was killed? Why didn't he think of this guy who had clearly been so problematic while he was at Crichton Medical School? Police had questioned him extensively about anyone that he may have had a problem with at the school. He even had sat down with Dr. Brumbach and they brainstormed together over it. So why hadn't Garcia come up? If he had, would his son's murder case have been solved much earlier? And even worse, could Roger and Mary Brumbach still be alive? if they had. Unfortunately, it was looking like the case could have been solved and the other two murders could have been prevented. Later on, once this case had made its way through the court system and all the documents and files became available, it turned out that Anthony Garcia's name had indeed come up. It was in the police reports. And it was in the early days of the investigation into the 2008 murders when it did. According to Pathological, four days after Tom and Shirley were murdered, on March 17, 2008, two homicide detectives with the Omaha Police Department visited Crichton, Detectives Eugene Watson and Linda Collins. And they were there to speak to the graduate medical education coordinator, Angie Alberico. Angie had actually been the one to make contact with the police department. She reached out to them with a tip about some specific medical students that had been kicked out of their residencies. It was right there, written in their police report in black and white. Quote, Alberica thought that Omaha police should look into these individuals as possible suspects in regards to the Hunter and Sherman murder investigation. When Angie Alberico spoke with the detectives that day, she provided them with the names of five residents. Two Asian men who were dismissed from their program, the Russian, another resident kicked out for substance abuse, and then there was Anthony Garcia, listed among all these others as having been fired from their program for making that prank call, along with another resident where that doctor taking his national exam 
was asked to come to Crichton immediately or be fired. And this prank call was the final issue that they had with Garcia after a host of other problematic issues that finally got him tossed from the program. The police report read, Alberico mentioned the other prankster who was in the pathology program 10 years ago as a person of interest. Alberico indicated a party by the name of Anthony Garcia, who was originally from California and was also in the pathology program, and that Dr. Hunter was the program director at the time that they were enrolled. Anthony Garcia was in their reports. The detective had written it down amongst a list of other residents and some general information about their dismissals. But this wasn't the only time that Garcia's name had come up. His name appeared one more time in May of 2008, two months after the murders, and this time it had come from Dr. Bill Hunter himself. He had sent an email to Detective Collins asking some questions about speaking to a reporter from a local newspaper. Detective Collins told Dr. Hunter that it would be better to not speak to the media. However, in the body of that same email, Dr. Hunter brought up two residents that he had fired back in 2001, though he had not brought them up previously to police in any of the interviews that he had had in the past. And Dr. Hunter included the names of those two residents, and one of them was Anthony Garcia. The other was the second resident that Garcia had made that prank phone call with. In the email, Dr. Hunter also listed both of their social security numbers and both of their dates of birth. Detective Collins put that information that she was sent in that email from Dr. Hunter into a report and wrote, quote, Dr. Hunter stated these two residents were involved in unprofessional conduct and were dismissed. Dr. Hunter stated, quote, We were always professional with one another, and I don't think they bore a grudge towards me. The reason that I even mentioned this incident was that several months ago, Garcia was disciplined by the Louisiana State Licensing Board because he lied on his application for his state license. When asked if he had ever been disciplined or terminated, he had said no. And with that, Detective Collins filed the report away. Having no idea the father of the victim had just provided her not only with the name of the killer, but a motive for the killings. Unfortunately, neither one of those tips were ever picked up on. Years later, Detective Collins would say that she did spend a few days looking into Garcia, but official police records did not indicate that Garcia was ever investigated. Collins also later said that she was aware that Garcia had been dismissed from his residency by Dr. Hunter, but it was Dr. Hunter himself that downplayed it which Dr. Hunter said that he did because he ended up helping Garcia get into a residency at the University of Illinois. Ultimately, Detective Collins said they just didn't look closely enough at him because Dr. Hunter told them he didn't think it was Garcia and she chose to listen to his feelings about it. 
While it might be easy to make excuses for not investigating Anthony Garcia, it's not easy to accept because the Omaha Police Department had conducted some really long and thorough investigations into other possible suspects and persons of interest who, on paper, appeared much less suspicious than Garcia himself. There were six pages in the report into the investigation related to the Russian. There were four pages on another resident who was black. And we know that witnesses did not see a black person near the crime scene the day of the murders. They saw a heavy set, possibly Hispanic person with tan skin. There were two pages in the report on one doctor from India and one page of the report on an Asian doctor. There were nearly 150 tips that were followed up on and listed in all of these police reports. There was even an interview listed in the investigative report that Detective Collins had looked into a woman who had a vision that the killings were committed by a man in his 50s. Detective Collins wrote about a half page in the report how she investigated this man from this woman's premonition. So, as the tips kept coming in, Garcia's name got buried deeper and deeper into the files. And according to Pathological, by the time the case was sent to the cold case unit in 2009, there were more than 2,300 pages in the report. Anthony Garcia's name was on a total of five of them. It wasn't until Roger and Mary Brumbeck were murdered that Garcia finally emerged as a suspect. Dr. Hunter even mentioned Garcia on the same day that the Brumbecks were killed. He told investigators how he was fired and that both he and Brumbeck were involved in his firing. But when Dr. Hunter did bring it up the day of the murders, he couldn't even remember Garcia's name at the time because it had been 12 years since his firing. All he was able to tell investigators at the time was he was Hispanic. Ten years after his son's murder, when he was shown the email that he had sent to Detective Collins that mentioned Garcia, even then Dr. Hunter looked at it and did not remember sending that email at all. After all, Dr. Hunter was still grieving for his son at the time. Anthony Garcia would not rise to the top of the suspect list until the task force was formed and Detective Moi was handed Garcia's personnel binder from Crichton and began reading through the pages of his file and putting the pieces together. So that day in July of 2013, when investigators from Omaha headed to Terre Haute to arrest Garcia at his home, they intended to take him into custody and do a thorough search of his house. Things ended up going down differently since Garcia had hit the road, but they still needed to go to his house and search it. And Garcia had a pretty nice house, from the outside anyway. He had a Ferrari parked in the driveway. But other than that, Garcia had very, very little inside the home itself. There's a few pieces of furniture. He slept on an air mattress. There was no bed in his bedroom. There were lots of empty beer cans in the garbage bin. He did have some paperwork set out on a table. This included his college degree, his state license to practice medicine in Illinois. Just important paperwork as if 
He was a person who knew that he was going to need to get his affairs in order. Interestingly, there were some papers in the kitchen sink that were tied up in like a plastic bag or a trash bag, and they were soaking in some kind of foul-smelling liquid that was a mixture of water and some sort of chemical, and this was an attempt to destroy these papers. But it didn't destroy them. It caused some of the ink on some of the pages to be runny, but that was about it. When this bag of papers was opened up and sorted through, there were a bunch of cryptic notes handwritten by Garcia. If you look online, you can see some of the images of them. Garcia has really terrible handwriting, and the water damage makes it hard to see. Included in this piles of paper were some documents related to his failed medical career. There were copies of the reviews from Dr. Butra. There was the termination letter signed by Dr. Hunter and Dr. Brumbeck. And this wasn't a copy. That was the original one. There were some bad reviews that he received while he was in medical school in Utah. There were state license application rejections from the states of Indiana and Kentucky. A letter he wrote to his financial institution that carried his home loan trying to avoid being foreclosed on. There was a list of ways that Garcia had made to try and save money. Things that said disconnect his cell phone, sell his luxury cars, because in addition to the Ferrari, he also had a Lotus, which he had already sold. He also wanted to try to apply for government assistance. There were notes that Garcia made on paper that appeared to be plans to solve some of his financial problems by committing crimes. According to Pathological, one page had plans to commit identity theft against another person named Anthony Garcia. He wrote, Arrive about 10.30 a.m. when no one is around. Steal pertinent mail from mailbox. Where they shop, supermarket, mall, movies, etc. Shop with their stolen credit info, credit cards, ATM cards, only at those places. Take out loans, credit cards, etc. with their info. Follow him to work. Another page looked like Garcia was planning a kidnapping when he wrote things like tie arms to sides, blindfold, duct tape. On one page, he scrawled the words, invade, rich house, torture, murder, jack, rich children, gun, invade, kill, knife, garage, kidnap family, torture, kill. On another page, he wrote, park around corner, common shoes, band-aids on fingertips, fake driver's license, Take jackhammer and crowbar, get their cell phones, separate rooms and house, pawn furniture, jewelry, pin number, ATM, cash, plastic ties, scissors, beer. In speaking with people who knew Garcia, it was becoming apparent that he was a man who never had the competence to become a doctor. He never wanted to be a doctor. He was and never would be intelligent enough. It was his mother and father who placed a tremendous amount of pressure on him to study medicine. 
Throughout most of his life, Garcia struggled with depression and suicidal ideations. As he got older, he began drinking heavily, and at some point, he developed homicidal ideations. As time wore on, he seemed to detach from reality. His actions were becoming more unpredictable and erratic, as well as increasingly violent. Police had long been under the impression that they were dealing with a homicidal mastermind. What they found was a man whose mind was so screwed up and perverse, it was unlike anything that they had ever dealt with. Tracing his life story back to where it all started and eventually went off the rails, it would take investigators back to California, where Garcia grew up, where his family still was. Law enforcement in California served a search warrant at Garcia's parents' home at the same time that they were set to search his home in Terre Haute. I mentioned his parents before back in, I believe, part one, Fred and Estella. Both of his parents worked full-time, his dad at the post office, and his mom was a nurse. So while they worked long hours, Garcia was left in the care of his grandparents for the first three years of his life. By 1976, the family had settled into the Los Angeles suburb of Walnut, where the couple had two more children, a boy and a girl. What Fred and Estella wanted more than anything was not only for their American dream to come true, but for their children to achieve beyond what they had in their lives. They wanted the American dream plus more. Fred was born in the United States, but Estella had immigrated from Mexico, and early on in their relationship, they lived in East L.A., where at the time there was a large Hispanic population. Garcia struggled with his weight starting in childhood. He had even needed to drop a few pounds in order to qualify to play for the Pee Wee Football League with the city. He continued playing football all the way into high school, but his family began to suspect that he was using performance-enhancing drugs. He eventually stopped playing altogether, supposedly because of an injury. Throughout his life, Garcia had very few friends, and there was no indication that he ever had a girlfriend at any point in his life. But by all accounts, he was close with his parents and his siblings. He never got into trouble. There was nothing notable that happened growing up or in school that stood out to anyone. There was nothing to indicate the path that his life would eventually take. But Garcia did struggle academically. He was found to have some sort of learning disability in elementary school and ended up being held back for a year. He never excelled. His grades were usually average, and even that was difficult for him. He managed to graduate from high school with about a 3.0 grade point average. And that wasn't bad, but it wasn't doctor level grades either. Despite his mediocre performance in school, Garcia's mom and dad pushed him to study medicine. A journal Garcia kept was discovered, and in sometime in 2003, he wrote about math being his favorite subject in school. He wanted to study math, he wanted to be a mathematician but his parents refused to allow him to pursue that. Garcia attended Cal State University, Los Angeles, and there his academic performance was similar to what it had been throughout most of his life, just average. But it was enough for him to graduate. He took the medical school entrance exam, 
but received a low score. After that, he applied to medical school, and he was turned down by all of them except for one, the University of Utah. And it is believed that the reason why Garcia was accepted into their medical school with a low entrance exam score was because he was Mexican. Garcia's father bragged constantly about his son, often referring to him as the brain surgeon. And he always wore his University of Utah Medical School t-shirt to show his pride for his son. Unfortunately, this whole entire foray into medicine would do nothing but set Garcia up for failure time and time again. It was later determined that Garcia actually entered medical school with the reading capabilities of a fifth grader. In addition to that, he read at a very, very slow pace. And medical school requires copious amounts of very complicated and technical reading. Not that I would ever know that. While Garcia was at Utah, he tried to get help in the way of accommodations being made for him due to his inability to read at the level of his peers. He complained all the time that it takes him forever to read. He's unable to take care of anything else in his life, including basic things like taking care of his home, doing his laundry, doing dishes, basic day-to-day things he had no time to attend to. He ended up failing several courses, including physiology, human genetics, and biochemistry. Garcia was on academic probation, and he had to retake all of the classes that he had failed. Within a year of being at medical school, Garcia sought treatment for depression. Also on his record, he began receiving citations for being drunk in public. Personal and mental health problems, stresses over school, and excessive drinking caused a tidal wave of problems for Garcia that he could not escape. He was also receiving poor remarks about his performance in class. He did not get along well with the staff or fellow students. He had even caused one patient to break down into tears. But with the accommodations that the school had made for him because of his reading disability and having spent one extra year more than a medical student should have, Garcia somehow managed to make it through medical school, earning his degree by barely passing the certification test only after having taken them multiple times. And so with that, he was officially Dr. Anthony Garcia. Subsequent to that, he was somehow accepted at a residency in upstate New York, which he started in the summer of 1999, even though it is documented that Garcia struggled every single step of the way to get there. And we know that Garcia got fired from his residency in New York after he yelled at an x-ray technician And that was for interrupting him while he was reading some note cards that he had made in order to do some extra studying because Garcia was still in way over his head. He went home to California until he got a second chance at a residency at Crichton in July of 2000. 
While his problems persisted and he ended up getting fired, it wouldn't be until the end of his third chance at the University of Illinois in Chicago that he appeared to be falling apart mentally. In January of 2003, after being there for a little more than a year, Garcia sought medical treatment for depression and migraines. He was admitting to his doctors that he could not stop yelling while he was at work. Eventually, he was finding it difficult to leave his apartment. He would cry and scream and drink all day and all night. He had written himself a prescription for antidepressants, but his outlook on life continued to remain grim. He eventually admitted to other doctors that he worked with that he was beginning to feel suicidal and homicidal. Garcia ended up being admitted into the hospital for 10 days out of the fear that he would harm himself or others. Two months after those 10 days, he was hospitalized again when he expressed feelings of wanting to commit suicide, but also devising ways of carrying it out. By the end of the year, the school administrators wanted to have Garcia evaluated to see if he was competent to keep going in their program. Instead, Garcia chose to leave the program rather than be evaluated. He went back to California and ended up staying there for three years. He filed for bankruptcy. He went on disability. And his parents told their friends and neighbors that he was on vacation. He tried to take his life by sitting in the garage with the car turned on. But his brother found him, passed out, and woke him up and got him out of there. Garcia did tell his brother that he wasn't trying to end his life, but his brother did find all of his important papers laid out on a table in his bedroom, just like they were when law enforcement searched his house in Terre Haute in 2013. Garcia tried applying for medical licenses in various states, but was repeatedly denied. His parents finally said, why don't you try to look for a different line of work? We will accept that if you do. So Garcia looked into becoming a car mechanic. He applied for a job with the LAPD. He applied to some law schools. But the one thing he didn't do was stop trying to pursue his medical career. And somehow, in 2007, Garcia managed to get accepted into a residency at LSU Health Center with their psychiatric program, of all things. It came out of nowhere, and it looked like Garcia was ready to embrace this opportunity, and he actually did all right. He received positive reviews from his LSU evaluators. He was doing really well and was staying on pace. But as quick as it came, it was gone again when the medical board in Louisiana discovered that he had been fired from Crichton. This time, Garcia's response to this failure was to murder Tom Hunter and Shirley Sherman. After those killings, Garcia had gone back to California again and slipped back into a debilitating depression. By this time, he was 34 years old. He started seeing a psychiatrist and admitted to having experienced homicidal feelings, though he did not admit that he had already killed two people. He just said he was feeling like it. 
He stayed in California for about a year when he managed to find some work back in Illinois in the medical field doing things like health checkups and physical screenings. He did that for about a year when he got the job providing medical treatment for prisoners in the federal detention centers in Indiana. This job was the first one that actually enabled Garcia to buy his first home, and that was his house in Terre Haute. He had also sought help with his drinking problem in 2011. So it started to look like Garcia was finally settling down and life was coming together for him. He was working in the medical field. He was making decent money. And it appeared that he wanted to pull himself together, finally. Unfortunately, it did not last because Garcia managed to lose his federal prison job in the summer of 2012. He did have conflicts with co-workers, but he was particularly bothered by the fact that his direct supervisor at that job was only a nurse. His drinking never really stopped. I believe he said in all of his adult life he had about one month of sobriety, but he was drinking again. People at work could smell it on him. He started making harassing phone calls to his superiors. Later on that year in 2012, the state of Indiana denied Garcia's application for a medical license. He had been working on a temporary one. He ended up losing another job after coming to work intoxicated. And from there, Garcia completely fell apart. On January 5th, 2013, a couple days after he was fired from that last job, Garcia took himself to the emergency room with a blood alcohol content of 0.24, telling the hospital staff that he wanted to kill himself. He was treated and discharged, but ended up back at that same emergency room later on with an even higher blood alcohol content. But before doctors were able to treat him, he left the emergency room on his own, but he ended up at a different hospital a couple of hours later. A week after that, Garcia dialed 911 from his house. Police showed up, but nobody came to the door, so they broke in and found him passed out on the floor with a bunch of empty beer cans around him and his handgun. The police confiscated the gun and sent him to the hospital. At his follow-up appointment a few days later, Garcia came back into his doctor's office intoxicated. On January 25, 2013, Garcia dialed 911 again, but he was so drunk he was told to call back later. A few days after that, Garcia was involved in a car accident with another driver. He got out of his car, gave the other driver his wallet, and drove away from the scene. The next day, Garcia went back to the hospital reporting that he drank almost two dozen beers. Three weeks after that, Garcia went to his neighbor's house and asked the neighbor to call 911 because he couldn't find his keys. The police showed up and told him that he needed to sober up, at which point he sat down on his front porch and pulled his jacket over his head. Garcia was finally arrested for the first time on March 12, 2013 for a DUI. It was only four days before the DUI that he had gone into that outdoorsy store, Gander Mountain, and purchased that gun that he had used to shoot Dr. Brunbeck. 
Garcia's internet history showed that it was around the same time that he began searching for Dr. Chandra Butra's address online. And all of these bizarre behaviors and his heavy drinking and him finding and losing more jobs because of drinking, all of that continued after he had returned home from murdering the Brumbacks. So when Garcia's black Mercedes SUV was impounded inside, he had a 45 caliber gun along with some ammunition, a sledgehammer, a crowbar. Both of those were brand new. He had rubber gloves, directions to Shreveport, Louisiana, a stethoscope, and an LSU lab coat. It had been five years since he was fired from LSU, but it did appear that he was headed in that direction when he was arrested, and it is believed he was headed there to exact some revenge. He also had three large manila envelopes that were addressed to his parents in California. Inside were important documents like his car titles and life insurance policy documentation. It looked like he had a plan to commit suicide in Louisiana once he was done doing whatever he was going to do at LSU. They found some places written down where Garcia could rent a deep sea fishing boat. And there was a list that said rent boat, have fishing gear, in right hand gun, hidden, in left hand phone, passport, driver's license, poison, hidden, knife, hidden, cash, Mercedes keys, medications. It appeared as though the idea was he would go far out to sea on a rented boat. He would kill himself and he would never be found and his parents could get an insurance payout. In a phone call from jail that was recorded, Garcia did tell his parents that he was headed to Louisiana to end his life. So in between the time Garcia having been arrested and taking him to trial, the detectives continued to gather evidence in the case. They wanted to make sure that they were not missing anything. They were able to get lots of incriminating information off of Garcia's iPhone, including searches for Dr. Butra's home, even months before the May 2013 killings. They also found searches that Garcia had made that appeared to be him looking into committing other crimes to offset his financial problems. His phone's GPS had placed him in Omaha the day of the murders, but they also found that he had searched for another doctor in Chicago in the days before the Brumbeck murders and that his phone traveled to the Chicago area before he ended up in Omaha on that Mother's Day. So for a moment, investigators thought, oh my God, do we have another dead doctor in Chicago? They reached out to that doctor and they found her to be alive. They told her that they were looking into Anthony Garcia and she was like, oh yeah, all I have to say about that is that he was not my favorite student. And so the investigators decided to not tell her any more information than that because they just didn't want to freak her out. Garcia was in custody and he wasn't going anywhere, so there was really no need. But the one thing they did not have and really, really wanted was the rest of the gun that had broken apart at the Brumbeck crime scene. 
They figured that Garcia had probably tossed it out somewhere in the 600 miles or 965 kilometers between Omaha and Terre Haute. There is no way that they would be able to cover that distance and try to find where it may have been tossed. But then they thought, well, is it possible that somebody found it or turned it in? And maybe there is a law enforcement agency in between those two places that entered the gun's serial number into their computers for a search to see if the gun had been reported lost or stolen. Would they be able to find it if it had been searched? So Detective Wong went to the firearms technician and he asked her, can we figure out if there has ever been a search made on the serial number of this gun? She said that it really didn't work like that, but she would see what she could do. After a day, she called the detective back and said, well, she figured out how they could do a search of the query history. And they found a sheriff's office in rural Illinois who had run Garcia's gun serial number in July of 2013, two months after the Brumbeck killings. A trucker had pulled over just inside Illinois after leaving Indiana to relieve himself. And when he did, he happened to glance down and he saw the frame of a broken gun on the ground so he called 911 and the sheriff came out and picked up the gun and later on he ran the serial number so detective walk called up the sheriff and asked if they still had the gun he put him on hold for about 15 minutes and when the sheriff came back he was like i've got it a few days later detective Ma drove out there and picked it up and it was like a gift Manna from heaven, so they say. So the gun that Anthony Garcia bought matched up to the parts at the Brumbeck crime scene. This was the link that they had been hoping for to be able to make between Garcia and the crime scene for all these years. So now we're going to get into some aspects of the trial. In the book, Pathological goes into some of the back and forth between the prosecutors and the defense team that was assembled to represent Anthony Garcia. But it is important to tell you, and I did mention this on Facebook yesterday, that some of you may already be familiar with the lead attorney defending Garcia, Robert Mata Jr., also known as Bob Mata. I've recently been made aware of a podcast that he hosts, and it's called Defense Diaries. He has several hours of audio taped interviews with serial killer John Wayne Gacy. And the reason that he has these tapes is because his father, Bob Mata Sr., was Gacy's defense attorney, and he had gifted them to his son. I believe he said it was his 21st birthday, and he kind of just held on to them and they collected dust until one day he and his friend or his roommate started listening to them. I haven't fully listened to Defense Diaries yet. I just started it, but it is on my list. And what's funny is a listener had messaged me. Um, I think it was around part two 
of the series when that was out, she messaged me and started telling me about Garcia's attorney and how she had met him at the True Crime Podcast Festival that had happened the first weekend in July. I think it was in Kansas City. And at this point, I didn't know about his podcast, but I already knew who he was because I was in the middle of the series on Anthony Garcia. I knew Bob Jr. was his attorney and I knew that Bob Sr. was helping with the Garcia case because this was Bob Jr.'s first murder trial. So she and I talked about him a little bit. And if I'm being honest, the book, I didn't think that the book portrayed Bob Mata very well or even the defense team as a whole, they were not portrayed in the most favorable light. But at the time that this listener and I were discussing it, I was still working my way through the book. I had also seen uh, Team Mata on Dateline, so I had a little bit of an idea of what happened with them in the case. I was convinced that Anthony Garcia was guilty, right? But then you listen to the defense attorneys and... Of course, their client is telling them that he's innocent and they need to defend him. But I wasn't ever really sure if his attorneys truly believed that Garcia was innocent or if it was more like they wanted to poke holes in the evidence and raise enough doubt to successfully defend him, which I get it. You know, it's their job. So... The weird thing was, is that a couple hours after I had this messenger conversation with a listener who met Bob Mata at the podcast festival, I got a friend request from Bob Mata and I was kind of thinking maybe I came up in his recommendations and that Facebook has now tracked me talking about him on messenger with somebody else. But we also had like 30 or 40 friends or so in common it's other podcast hosts and whatnot. And so after a while, I accepted his request. And then a couple of days ago, I followed him on Twitter, I think it was. And then he followed me back. But then I still kind of held my breath thinking that maybe he would message me about the Garcia case. But luckily, I hadn't even brought him up in the show until now. I haven't messaged him. He hasn't messaged me. And I don't even know if he's noticed that we're covering Garcia's case. But I am glad that I am aware he is a part of the podcast community now that I'm actually going to be mentioning his name here. But anyway, his show is called Defense Diaries. He practices law out of Chicago along with his wife, Allison. And I believe Bob Mata Sr. is listed on their website too. Pathological, the book called Bob Mata Sr. folksy, but the book called Bob Jr. and Allison Feisty. And I kind of gathered that from what I had seen on their Dateline episode. Feisty is a pretty good word for it. But I'll, for the most part, I'm going to leave the book's opinions of the Matas out. But I will say that they exuded a tremendous amount of confidence that they were going to win Garcia's case. After Garcia was arrested, of course, he got in touch with his family and he asked for their help in finding him an attorney. Garcia had been taken into custody in the southern part of Illinois. 
So his younger brother began randomly calling attorneys in the state, and Bob Mata Jr. was one of them. So he listened to the voicemail, and Garcia's brother first mentioned that his brother had been taken into custody for a DUI. And because Bob's practice is based in Chicago, I don't think he was exactly jumping at the chance to take him on as a client if he had to travel too far south. But as the message went along, Garcia's brother mentioned some murder charges in Omaha, Nebraska, and that grabbed Bob's attention. And it was lucky that he had left that message for Bob because he was the first attorney to return his phone call and he wanted to take the case and he was really enthusiastic about it. And Bob's wife, Allison, they're law partners too. They got themselves together. They headed down there to where Garcia was being held. They were there for his extradition hearing and they agreed right away for him to be sent back to Omaha and they would end up renting a house in the area for their team to stay at in Omaha while they worked on Garcia's case. As I mentioned, this was Bob Mata Jr.'s first murder case and his dad had always suggested that if he ever needed his help to let him know and he would come out of retirement, which he did for Garcia's case. He had a lot of years of experience and he had defended a serial killer once before. So dad was on board. Garcia, like I said, maintained his innocence and the Matas were willing and prepared to defend him. The fact that so many years had passed from the time that Garcia was fired from Crichton to the time that the murders took place, it had just left everything open for so many other possibilities to have taken place. By the time the Brumbachs were killed, it had been more than a dozen years. It was a lot of time to have passed for Garcia to have gone back to get revenge. But the local media in Omaha had been all over the story, and the cards had already been stacked against Garcia. But to his defense team with that many years, there were so many other potential persons of interest who also could have carried out these crimes, who could have had the opportunity to do it, that could have been much more plausible than Garcia. He had barely known the victims. It was so long ago. Too much time had passed. There were infinite number of possibilities, but the media had been focused on Garcia. I will say this about Team Mata. They were a little bombastic. There just isn't any getting around that. I think the people in Omaha, the prosecution, the cops, and the judge, I think they got the idea that the Matas were like these really glib big city attorneys that had come into their little town ready to take on everybody and win the case. But the Matas weren't too concerned with ruffling some feathers because at the end of the day, they weren't from there. They didn't practice law there, so it didn't make much difference to them. In the book, it even said that Garcia had started to build up a little bit of bluster himself when he told a reporter that they were going to kick the prosecution's ass. Bob Mata Jr. got into his fair share of shouting matches with basically everyone. And Allison, his wife, she was right there with him. But what I didn't care for in the book is that Bob was cast as kind of like this confident, boastful, aggressive attorney but then Allison was described as plucky and honorary. And she was just given these adjectives with these negative connotations. And for me, the only reason for it was because she was a woman. So 
her aggressiveness is cast into this negative light, which I don't care for. It even got to a point in March of 2016 when the judge refused to allow Allison to represent Garcia anymore. She was kicked off the team of defense attorneys because she had said something to the media about some DNA on Shirley Sherman's bandana that she wore on her head that had been tested by their defense experts and it was linked to another potential suspect. Allison said that this DNA evidence would exonerate Garcia, but apparently the statement wasn't exactly accurate. The DNA on the bandana that Shirley was wearing did not link to the person that Allison had named. The swab was a mixture of several DNA profiles and really nobody was exonerated or implicated. So the prosecutor and the judge felt like Allison was trying to contaminate potential jurors because they were about to go into jury selection about a week away. Anyway, Allison, uh, even though she wasn't going to be able to work with the defense in court, she was going to be able to continue to help them and assist them. She just wouldn't be able to say anything in the court or sit at the defense table. This caused the trial to be delayed. And in Allison's place would be Nebraska attorney Jeremy Jorgensen. Team Mata did not have a license to practice law in Nebraska, so they needed him. Incidentally, in the time since Garcia's trial, Jeremy Jorgensen was subsequently disbarred and then he was convicted of child abuse. He had already been disbarred for failing to appear for some oral arguments in federal court for an unrelated case. So the child abuse conviction stemmed from an incident where he had been at his home arguing with his wife and it was at some point his seven-year-old son threw a toy at him. So he grabbed him and went over to the stairs, but whatever happened next isn't really clear. The wife said she heard some noise and then some screaming. From there, they drove to the hospital, but as they went, Jorgensen was trying to make up some story with his wife and his son about what actually happened. They'd even driven past the hospital while they were still deciding on what they were going to say, eventually settling on that he broke his arm while playing with a Nerf gun. Anyway, it had been a couple of years since Garcia's trial, so Jorgensen's life hadn't quite come apart just yet. He's been convicted. I think he's probably still in jail. He was sentenced to a little more than three years for uh, child abuse and for tampering with witnesses. So, yeah, that was a thing that happened with uh, Garcia's defense attorney. So anyway, unfortunately, all of the delays that were going on in his case started to take its toll on Garcia his relationship with his defense attorneys started to fall apart. When they had first began working with him, the Matas were kind of like what Garcia needed to sort of lift his spirits. He liked them. He liked their enthusiasm. But as time was dragging on, Allison being removed from the case, causing even more delays, and the Matas wanted to appeal it. And by the time the trial Finally got around to beginning, Garcia had all but stopped communicating with his defense team altogether. So Garcia's trial began in October of 2016. The prosecutors were going to try him for all four murders in one trial, even though they had vastly different amounts and kinds of evidence in each case. And I've gone over that extensively, so I'm not going to go over it all again. 
it wasn't going to be easy to defend Garcia against everything that they had on him on the 2013 murder case. They had the gun and they had the digital information placing him in the area and they had his internet search history. And oh yeah, the DNA that was swabbed on the Butra's back door when someone had tried to open it that set off their alarm, that came back as a match to either Garcia or a male member of Garcia's family. They had also all of those handwritten papers that Garcia had attempted to destroy in his kitchen sink too. So that case was pretty airtight and they weren't worried about it. But when it came to the 2008 case, they had the information that Garcia had owned a silver Honda CRV matching the vehicle that witnesses had seen near the Hunter home the day of those murders. Garcia had matched the description of the person that witnesses saw driving the vehicle and walking up to the Hunter's front door. However, none of the witnesses, when they were shown a photo lineup with Garcia in it five years later, none of them were able to pick him out as being the person that they saw that day of the murders. Essentially, Garcia's defense team were going to have to try to have him acquitted on the 2008 murders in order to lessen the chances of him landing on Nebraska's death row. That was their goal. When it came to the 2008 case, the state did have one witness that has been described as a bombshell witness. After investigators had finished their search of Garcia's home in Terre Haute, they began talking to people who knew him and they discovered that he frequented strip clubs. They had an idea that he had frequented these places because they could see it in all of his credit card records. So they decided to visit the ones that he visited the most to see if they could talk to anybody or find out any information about him. And they found one particular club that Garcia went to most frequently. And when they went there and talked to the dancers, they all knew Garcia. They were familiar with him. But they also knew that he had an affinity for one dancer in particular. She didn't work there anymore, but she went by the name Ryder. But her real name was Cecilia. And officers managed to track her down. She still lived in Terre Haute and she was willing to talk to them. They came to her home. She invited them in and she was very cooperative and very nice. Cecilia called him Dr. Tony. And he had spent a lot of money on her. He eventually began getting too comfortable with her, making passes at her. So she started to make an effort to keep some distance from him. Because he was a doctor, there was this conversation that they were having. And when he was expressing interest in starting to date her, she told him that she only liked bad boys. And he responded to that by telling her that he was a bad boy, that he had killed a young boy and an old woman. As Cecilia recalled this conversation, she was overcome with emotion. She figured that Garcia was just making up stories to impress her, so she had brushed it aside. It really struck her hard when she realized that those detectives were there to talk to her about those very murders. Now, the investigators, they were skeptical. Perhaps Cecilia was just saying these things for attention Garcia's case had been all over the news, but because she had become so emotional, they felt it was genuine and raw, and so they believed her. Even though the rest of the world might doubt her because of her occupation, 
they had faith in her. But just to make sure that they felt like she was credible, before the trial, the prosecutors themselves traveled to Indiana to speak to her directly. They also wanted to make sure that they connected with her, that they established a rapport, because they were going to want her to come to Omaha to testify eventually. In Pathological, it said that Garcia's defense team, however, were going to try to stop Cecilia from testifying. So apparently a couple of years after Cecilia first talked to the Omaha detectives as the trial was getting closer, Garcia's defense attorneys hired a private investigator to go to her home for their own interview. And that private investigator was a former sheriff's deputy named Steve Yankee. And he is described as being kind of an opposing figure standing at about six foot six or just under two meters tall, 198 centimeters. He went to Cecilia's home in June of 2015. Remember, detectives had been there in 2013. What was said during that interview depended on who you were talking to. Garcia's defense attorney said it was a conversation where Cecilia eventually admitted that she made up the whole thing about Garcia telling her that he had killed a young boy and an old woman. The prosecution, however, said it was an attempt at coercion to get her to not testify. They said that while Steve Yankee was there talking to Cecilia, that he placed a phone call to Allison Mata. And according to Cecilia, Allison said something to her like, honey, I would love it if you would just disappear. Now, before the meeting between Steve and Cecilia was even finished, Police in Omaha had been informed that he was there at her house. But then Steve said something to Cecilia that gave her some doubts about who exactly it was she was talking to. Because when he got there, he showed her a badge. So she thought that he was a police officer. So she got on her phone and she sent an email to Omaha Detective Davis back in Nebraska and told him that there was a person at her house telling her that her testimony wasn't necessary at the upcoming trial. So Detective Davis, he got that email and he called her right away. And he told her, no, 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 no. We need you to come to court. The person that she was talking to was not affiliated with them. And if she wasn't sure of his real identity, that she should tell him to leave. And if he won't leave, then she should call police. So Cecilia asked him to leave and he did, but that wasn't going to be the end of it. Cecilia was called to testify on the ninth day of the trial. She told the court that she and Garcia had known each other for about a year, starting in 2012 until his arrest in 2013. She told the court that Garcia was really arrogant and he was loud he always had a lot of money, and he always bragged about being a doctor. He was very friendly. He was always talking about his work. He was always cracking a lot of jokes. He had a good time while he was at the club, and she enjoyed his sense of humor and his company. In Pathological, it said that Garcia had become such a well-known regular at that strip club and whenever he walked in, the music stopped and the DJ would yell into the mic, hey, let's welcome Dr. Tony to the club. 
And one person even described him as the strip club version of Norm from Cheers. Cecilia told the court that she did take advantage of Garcia and the attention that he showed her and the money that he gave her. There had been numerous times when she would text him and ask him to take her to Olive Garden, and he was always happy to do so. She had no romantic interest in him. She admitted it was a difficult time in her life. She admitted that she was struggling with drug addiction, that everything was unstable. Whenever Garcia came in, she would go right to him. She would do private dances for him. He always spent a lot of money on her. But at the same time, he was always very nice to her. He always complimented her and told her how beautiful she was. And on some days, it would just make her feel better. But she did tell the court that there were some things about Garcia that had her wondering what was really going on with him because sometimes he just seemed a little bit off. Then there came a time when they were outside the club having a cigarette when Garcia suggested that they started dating. It was on one of the evenings when they had gone to the Olive Garden when he leaned in and tried to kiss her, but she pulled away and told him she wasn't ready. Eventually, there came a time when Cecilia knew it was better if she started backing away from him. When a person is a regular customer for a while, it starts to get old and they start wanting more. So you have to let other dancers go with him instead. At the time, she wanted to be as kind about it as she could be. She wanted to try to take things easy on him. So she began by telling Dr. Tony that he was way too good for her, that she's a bad girl. You're a doctor. I prefer bad boys. And he responded that by saying that he wasn't that good. There was a short silence and then he said, I've killed people before. She didn't believe him and said, no, you haven't. And he was like, yes, I have. And she was like, "Okay, well, tell me about it then. And he said it was an old woman and a young boy. She still didn't believe him, but she just played along and asked him why he killed them. And he told her that they deserved to be killed. Well, they didn't deserve it, but he needed to do it. Cecilia's testimony was damning. So the defense was going to go in and attack Cecilia's credibility. So Bob Mata Jr. asked Cecilia about her work as a dancer. That ultimately, you want a customer to eventually pay you for a private dance. She agreed. He said, so part of what you do is to get the customer to think that you're really into them. And she agreed. And he asked, so if you have a customer who isn't all that good looking, you try to make him feel as though he is. And she agreed. So Bob said, that's a part of what you do is, is you lie. She agreed. Then she admitted when she spoke to Omaha police about Garcia that she had consumed some alcohol at that time. And then when she spoke to his investigator, Steve Yankee, she kind of rolled back on what she had initially said by stating it had been a long time. I don't know if I was fully comprehending what Garcia was saying. I don't know if I remember the conversation correctly. I don't want Garcia's life to be in jeopardy based on this really difficult period in my life. And that she could not stand by anything she said or did during those years in her life. She told Bob Mata that she just couldn't remember making those statements. 
So Mata was confident that he was able to put some doubt in Garcia's alleged confession to her in the minds of the jury. So there was more back and forth with questions for Cecilia from the prosecutor and then from Mata again. Cecilia at one point told the court that Steve Yankee scared her and Mata took exception to that, asking her what she was scared of. And she said she didn't really know. And so he said, so a guy at a strip club tells you that he's murdered two people, but that doesn't scare you one bit. The prosecution tried to object, but Mata got to ask the question again. And according to the book, he started getting loud. You're scared of this guy who has a badge and identifies himself as a private investigator. And then the volume of his voice increased to a shouting. And in the book, it was all caps. But you're not scared when some guy tells you that he's killed people. Is that what you want this jury to believe? Prosecution objected again. The courtroom settled down. And then Cecilia finally provided her answer. When a pervert in a strip club tells me a joke, it doesn't scare me didn't really seem like the jury was that comfortable with the people at the defense side of this case. Cecilia, despite Mata's efforts, turned out to be a pretty powerful witness for the state. She came across really well to the jury, despite attempts to cut her down because of her past. And there's one point that she made, which really stood out to me, and it probably stood out to everybody in that courtroom. But she said she really couldn't figure out what Garcia was trying to prove to her when he told her about the two people that he had killed. If he really wanted to impress her, why didn't he tell her that he killed a couple of men or a couple of criminals or drug dealers or bad guys? Why in the world would he tell her that he killed a young boy and an old woman? That was something that had always bothered her because he could not have picked two more harmless people to have said that he murdered. Garcia's trial lasted for 16 days. Through most of it, Garcia either doodled on a piece of paper, or he slept, or he was pretending to sleep. He went through the entire process without saying a word. His hair and his beard had grown and was messy and unkempt when the case was sent to the jury they deliberated for a little more than seven hours over two days they would find garcia guilty on all four counts of first-degree murder the families of the victims were there but i don't think that the family of the brungbecks were there i didn't see that in any of the information but Garcia's family was there as well. The Garcias, his parents, they had pinned all of their hopes on their oldest son. At one time, he had such a promising future. And now they were sitting in this courtroom behind him as he was being convicted four times over for murder. And not one time did he ever turn around and look at his family he didn't even acknowledge that they were there. They did briefly speak to reporters after the verdict, acknowledging how difficult this had been for everybody. Everybody felt so sorry for them as well. 
In September of 2018, Garcia was sentenced to death, which was expected. By this time, the Matas were no longer representing him. His parents had depleted their life savings for his trial. They did show up for his sentencing hearing, and he still never even acknowledged them. They did speak to the media a little bit more. They had accepted his guilt and were prepared for the worst. Garcia's father told reporters that his son was struggling with mental illness, that the son he knew was not like this. He had gone through medical school, and this was not like him at all. Garcia's brother offered his apologies to the families of his brother's victims and hoped that one day that they would be able to find closure. Today, Anthony Garcia is 48 years old, and he is only one of 12 inmates on Nebraska's death row. Okay, that brings us to the end of this episode and to the end of the series on Dr. Serial Killer Anthony Garcia. If you were in the middle of listening to this episode earlier and it suddenly vanished, it is because of all this hoopla over the way that I pronounce Crichton. The way that I've decided to say it in this episode isn't based on anything anyone suggested. I heard what everyone had to say about it, that it's wrong, that there needs to be an accent, that I need to do research before I record. I took nobody's advice. I just decided to say it the way that I felt comfortable saying it naturally. And it might be different in each one of these four parts of this series, but it doesn't really matter because the bickering about how this word is pronounced has all come down to a matter of opinion. There is no single definitive way of saying it that everybody can agree on. So it's an argument that nobody can win. It gave me a headache. So I'm going back to bed. And until next time. Sweet dreams.